Amen. It's been so good to have uh, Jason and his family here with us this week. Would you just give them a thank you for coming and serving us this week? Yes, thank you. And to daughter McKenna, right? Yes, being here too. That was encouraging to see her up here uh, singing as well. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Before we look here at 1 John chapter 5, let me ask you this. Does anybody here feel like the world is messed up? Yes. <laughs> Amen. That's right. That's right. Have you ever felt like the world is just cruel and unjust and broken beyond repair? Anybody? Sometimes we can look at the direction of the culture, the corruption of the government, or the state of the economy, and friends, it can be discouraging, isn't it? Sometimes, and, and if you haven't been here, you're going to get here at some point in your life, you're going to get to the point that even living feels difficult. And in this tension, First John comes to us. While there's different specifics, it's fascinating that the same general problems in the world have been unchanged for thousands of years. John's culture in this day was wildly immoral. Let me tell you this, the Roman Empire was celebrating sexual liberation far before our culture got an idea about it. The Roman Empire was persecuting and seeking to destroy the church, and there was false teaching wrecking havoc among God's people in Ephesus. Life was a mess, but John writes this letter, specifically 1 John chapter 5, to answer the big question for our week, how do I live in a messed up world? Remember, we've been working our way through the letters of John, seeing that, he, that we ask big questions and John gives big answers to the big questions of our life. And his goal isn't simply that we would live in a messed up world, but that we would thrive. So look with me, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 12 together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of God. 
As I said, John doesn't simply want to show us how to live in a messed up world. He wants to show us how to thrive in this messed up world. God does not desire for you to coast through life, but for you to press forward. Not for you to just be a passive participant, but to be active in your walk with God. And John introduces us in verse 4 to the overcomer. He says, the one who overcomes the world. Now, what does it mean to overcome the world? Well, let me tell you, we've come to the right guy. John, the, the 24 times that the word overcome is used in the Bible, John uses it 21 of those times. So he's kind of the expert on how to overcome and how to do all of this, right? And he always points us, either explicitly or implicitly, back to Jesus. He wants us to know that our victory is not our own, but it's rooted in our union with Christ. Let me remind you, the night before Jesus was crucified, what did he say? He said this, John 16, 33, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right out the gate, you can see that being an overcomer does not mean freedom from suffering or temptation in this life. Jesus outright just tells you, in this world you're going to have trouble. Christian or non, whoever you are, you will have trouble in this world. But he says, in the midst of that, you can have peace and take heart because of what Jesus has done. And he tells us really three things that it means to be an overcomer before he gives us ingredients to living in this messed up world as an overcomer. And we know first that being an overcomer means we have hope for a future new world. We have a hope for a future new world. That because Jesus died and rose again, the world as we know it isn't the end of the story. That just as Jesus died and rose again in a glorious body, so the Bible promises us that one day this world is going to be resurrected into a new and glorious existence when Jesus returns. And for those in Christ, we will experience and share in this victory. The Apostle Peter encourages us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says there's a new world coming, and it's only coming when Jesus comes. To be an overcomer means hope of a future new world. Second, to be an overcomer means present victory over sin and Satan. It means a present victory over sin and Satan. If you're in 1 John 5, look back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, at what John wrote to the young men there. And look what he says here. I write to you, young men, and I think he intends to include young women in this as well. I write to you, young people, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. (laughs) And, And this doesn't mean that Satan's not going to tempt and try you, but it does mean that you have been given all the power and all the resources needed to stand firm. That just as Jesus stood firm in the wilderness testing by the Spirit and the Word, so we as His people can stand firm and overcome the evil one. John writes in the book of Revelation to a people being accused by Satan. And look what he says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. 
and they have conquered him, overcome him, same word there, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. He says we overcome by the blood, meaning we trust in the promises of Jesus. And we stand firm on his word. That is our testimony. But that last part is key. For they loved not their lives even unto death. That to be an overcomer, third and finally, means we're freed from the fear of death. We have a present freedom from the fear of death. And thus, we can stand firm in the truth and hold fast in this life, knowing that eternity awaits. But the worst, remember the words of Jesus, don't fear him who can take your life and go no further. He said, that's, if you're in Christ, that's all Satan can do is kill you and give you your reward. He said, but rather fear him who can, send, who can, who can kill both body and body. And soul. He said, fear God instead. Think of what John writes to the churches in and around Ephesus. He would send them more letters. In fact, at the start of the book of Revelation, there are seven churches which were kind of all around the same area as Ephesus, and they each got a letter with a message. And I'd encourage you later today, if you want to do this, go look at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you'll read that each of these churches just like ours, with issues. There's not a single church you'll ever find that's not full of sinners, right? So they were just like ours. And he writes to all of them. And at the end, after all of their issues, he says, if you overcome. And then he offers them a glorious heavenly reward. And you can go read how each of these seven churches, there's this incredible, glorious future that awaits them if they overcome the world in the present. He says, we overcome the world. We have this hope of a future, a new world. We can have present victory over sin and Satan by the power of the Spirit and the Word. And that we can overcome because if we're not afraid of death, then what else can this world do to us? And then he gives ingredients. How do we really begin to believe this, hold fast to this? How do we walk in this overcoming? What's the ingredients for thriving in the messed up world? And he gives us three ingredients for us. Three ingredients. If we're making here what it looks like to thrive in a messed up world, and he starts by saying in order to overcome in this world, we need faith from God. The first thing we need to overcome in this world is faith from God. Not faith over God. I don't know how that got there, but that's all right. Faith from God. Look at verse 4 again. Look at this. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Of God. He says, faith is necessary for thriving in this world and not a general vanilla faith in a higher power. No, 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 no. You need a faith rooted and grounded in Jesus, the Son of God. John has particulars in mind here. He's calling us to faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior. To John, doctrine mattered immensely for your day to day living. 
In fact, verse 4 says that our faith is actually the means by which we overcome. It's the tool we use. It's the weapon of our warfare, the boots for our hike, the coat for the stormy weather of life in this world. And it means we must stand firm in God's word while the, word re- while the world rejects it. To stand firm in believing not just the truth of God's word, but also its goodness. It's not just the true way. It is the good and beautiful way that leads to flourishing. And here's what's encouraging about this. Is a life of faith is the life of an overcomer. That means, friends, to, to live as an overcomer means doesn't mean that you're going to make a ton of money. You may not make a ton of money. It's very unlikely that anybody in this room will ever become president of the United States. You may never even leave your small hometown, and that's okay. You can live a life of victory, the life of an overcomer, and the life of faith. Success in God's kingdom is not the same as what the world would have us see as successful And he says that this faith comes from God. Look where John began the chapter, verse 1. Look at this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I want you to look at the language with me here again. Everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, has been, past tense, born of God. Here's what he's telling us in your notes here. New birth comes first then faith follows. This is something that's so different from, I think, how often we think about this. So many people describe it as, well, if you believe, then you'll be born again. John says that actually in order to believe, you need to be born again first. And that it's those who experience the new birth who overcome. Look at 1 John 5, verse 4 again. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I want you to see the assurance in these words that those born of God overcome the world. That he who began a good work in you will bring it forth to completion. That that means, hear me, God is actually going to use the very mundane acts of faith to bring you toward his intended goal. He's going to use scripture reading and prayer and church involvement as a means of victory, not just as you going through the motions. Friends, consider this. All these things we do regularly, church involvement like this, daily scripture reading, prayer, think of them like food. Friends, few of us ever really think a ton about what we eat, but over enough time, what we eat can really begin to have an effect on who we are and on the health of our body. So it is when we come, even if it's a mundane, even if it feels like you came to the Word today and you're like, man, I could only describe that as a boring salad. (laughs) God is going to use it in formation of your life and in order for you to overcome the world. It's an invitation to pursue God passionately, passionately, knowing that in the long run, He is going to work His good and faithful work in you. True faith Thriving faith, faith in Jesus, comes from God through the new birth, not from within ourselves. Let me tell you something. There's pastors out there who have this understanding of faith that, well, if I just turn the temperature down, make it real cold, and I just dim the lights, and I play that nice, sappy, just as I am enough times, I can get these folks to make a response. 
I'll just tug on their emotional heartstrings, and they just can't take it anymore. And 1 John reminds us of this. Faith is not the result of psychological manipulation, but of supernatural recreation. I can't make anyone believe through sort of these means, these games. It's not like if if we just sort of create the right environment, we can get someone to produce this. No, faith is a gift from God that we receive. It's something we receive because we've been born again. I want you to look over at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is a very churchy verse. We hear Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 a lot, but we don't really ever stop and think about it. Look at this with me. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, meaning both the grace and the faith, is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The point here is that grace has given faith, and that, and that through faith we receive the gift of God. It's not something we can boast in. It's something God has given to us. And this means the world can tempt you. The world can try you. The world can even put you to death. But if God has given you the gift of faith, they can never take you out of the Father's hand. That what God began in you through supernatural recreation, the world can't undo. Satan can't undo. Nobody can undo. We live in a messed up world and we need faith from God. We need faith given by grace through new birth. Faith which is not our own works, but it is the gift of God. God hasn't left us to stand in this world on our own. God hasn't even left you to remain in the faith in this world on your own. God is at work in the beginning and the middle and the end of your life of faith. Through all of it, he's at work bringing you toward overcoming the world. We need faith from God. But he he has a second ingredient that we need to throw in there, and it's kind of closely connected to the first. He says that we need love for God. We need faith from God, but we also need love for God. Look back at verse 1 with me again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you see John connect faith and love here almost as if they're two sides of the same coin? He says, you can't have faith in God and not love God. And, you, and, and he says, and, you, and we can see that you love God by how you live for God. Faith and works are distinct, but inseparable realities. Jesus actually says as much in John 14, 15, the night before he's crucified, he says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Loving and keeping are separate, but there's a connection between them that just cannot be broken. The letter of James famously says that faith without works is dead. So here he would remind us, this is the point in your notes, that a living faith is a faith that loves God, loves others, and obeys his commands. If you want to thrive in this messed up world, we need a living faith that loves God, loves others, and does what God says. John lays it out clear. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. 
So many people will say, man, I just really love God until it comes to giving him an hour of my week, much less their lives. Friends, would anybody believe me if I said I loved my wife and yet never spent time with her? Or if I said I love my wife, but I would never even do the dishes if she asked, or take out the trash, or even maybe do those things sometimes without being asked, but because it's the right thing to do? Yet so many of us claim to love God, and ultimately we love the idea of God loving us and eternity in heaven, but we don't really care if God's there. We've got what I call the Kenny Chesney religion. You ever heard his famous song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, but... Nobody wants to go now, right? Because he's like, I've got too much fun to have. Because we think heaven's just one big party, but what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Friends, we want the love of God in the future, but friends, we don't want to love God in the present. And that's because we've reduced love down to just this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling rather than to an action and a verb and something that we do. Now, there's many who will hear the idea of loving God through what we do and say, man, that really sounds hard. It sounds like service. That even sounds a little like maybe slavery and, and doing these things. And like, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to be miserable for the glory of God. <laughs> but John gives us an important word there at the end. I think we need to see it again. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're not crushing. God isn't after the sort of obedience we often give our jobs. I'm just going to grin and bear it and get it done because they're giving me a check and I like to eat. No, no, no. There are times in your faith journey that you're going to have to do that. You're hopefully not to receive a payment from God, but I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to grin and bear. But John is telling you that in the end, following God's word and God's way are pathways to life. This will change the way you think about what God's commandments are because God's commands are not given to us in order to kill our joy. They're given to us in order to enhance our joy. God's commands are not given to be a kill joy. He's given them to us in order to enhance our joy. His commandments are given as a pathway to joy. They may not always be what feels best in the moment, but God is after far more than your momentary, cheap pleasure. God is after eternal and lasting satisfaction. And that's why I would encourage you to commit 1 John 5, this section, to memory, because we need to remember this when it's hard to obey. We need to remember this when we're tempted towards sin. We need to remind ourselves, his commandments are life, and they are not burdensome. They're not going to leave me crushed and empty. I know I'm being presented with an easy way out that's not going to please God, but I'm going to do what God would have me do, even if it appears more difficult in the long term, because there's life at the end of the path. We need to be reminded that the love of God isn't about our momentary ease and pleasure, but eternal glory and satisfaction. We need to be reminded that we need love for God in order to thrive in this messed up world. And and we need to remember that there's a difference between loving God and loving the things God does for us. Again, there's a lot of people that love the idea of heaven and salvation and all these things, but they'd love to have all of that and not necessarily have God at the end of it. 
But he says, no, we need a love for the person of God. Do you know him? Do you love him? And finally, he says, to live life in this messed up world, we need faith from God, love for God. And finally, we need assurance in God. We need assurance in God. In other words, he's going, preacher, how can I be sure of all of this? I mean, I know, I, I mean, how can I know that faith from God and love for God is really going to help me thrive? And this is where John moves in this new section. He wants to point us toward Jesus as our only hope. He's wanting to give assurance to those who are doubting if they can truly thrive in this world. And here's his point. He wants to tell us that our assurance is grounded in the testimony of Jesus. He says, you can take this to the bank because Jesus took it to the cross. Look what he says. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood... Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. John says, I'm going to put the testimony of Jesus to the test. And in the Hebrew mind, if they wanted to play like CSI, they looked to a text in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17 taught the Hebrews that if they were going to convict someone of a crime, they needed to have two or three pieces of evidence. If you were going to do CSI Old Testament, you needed to have several different lines of evidence in order to make a conviction. And so if you wanted to investigate any claim, you needed multiple ways of doing it. And this is the same standard John follows. And he says, I offer three testimonies of the truth as assurance to you. He says, verse seven, verse 7 there, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. He says, the Holy Spirit will testify to the truth of who Jesus is. He says, you want to know who Jesus is? The Holy Spirit will tell you through the Word. Then notice, in addition to the inward testimony of the Spirit, he mentions water and blood. I think it's important that John is pointing to things we all would recognize. We've all seen water. <laughs> we all know what blood is, and many of us have probably seen it, right? These are tangible things we all can experience. And he says, you can trust Jesus because... He came by these tangible things. He was a tangible person with these real experiences like us. And he says, through the water. This is likely a reference to Jesus' baptism. When he's plunged under the water, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. He says, Want to know who Jesus is? Look at his baptism. You got a man being dunked under the water, and then you got God speaking from heaven. It's a pretty big deal, right? I don't think God spoke from heaven over any of our baptisms here today. There's something unique about this guy. God calls him his son. And then he mentions the blood. This is a reference, I believe, to Jesus' death. Consider all that happened while he was on the cross. It was noonday, and darkness covered the cross. The veil in the temple was torn in two. There was an earthquake. And friends, remember, three days later, he was no longer dead, and the tomb was empty. Curious why you should trust Jesus and have assurance in him? John says, consider the 
the testimony of the Spirit that is subjective, but also consider the objective historical evidence. Jesus came and lived in the world. He was baptized by people. You've got to get real close in order to baptize somebody. He died publicly and shed his blood where people could see. God has given us a testimony, evidence that provides us with assurance. Look at verse 10 where he closes here. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. God, Jesus, John here is pointing us back to the point of the whole section. Our assurance is ultimately rooted in a person. It is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ himself. Whoever believes has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit points toward Jesus. We read that God himself has borne testimony concerning Jesus. Thus, to re- reject Jesus to, is to reject God himself. And we see that God has given us eternal life and that this eternal life is in His Son. Friends, God has not left us without evidence of our assurance. He has left us with assurance that we can overcome because Jesus has overcome this world in His life, death, and resurrection. We, by faith from God, love for God, and assurance in God will overcome the world as well. Or as John puts it real succinctly there at the end of the passage, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We know what he means here. He's saying the fullness of life, the experience that God would have for us. He said that those in Jesus, life is found. Even in a world of death, in a messed up world, Christ has come and overcome, and we overcome in Him. And friends, Christ has overcome in order that we might find our joy in Him. Let me finish here. Did you know that God's glory and your joy are not opposed to one another, but they actually work toward the same end? That obedience in God's kingdom and happiness in God's kingdom are not enemies but friends. When you begin to understand this, it will radically change the way you live your life. If I could put it succinctly the way that a Pastor John Piper put, he said it this way. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, that when God is seen as big... And we see him as our only, and we see him as, as, as our only hope, then God is most glorified. God is most glorified when we rest in him and we find our all in all in him. That Jesus is our life, and thus we can give him every aspect of our life. That God's glory and God's joy and, and your joy are not opposed in this life, but are one in the same mission. And that by pursuing God, you find life in this world? Where is your hope in this messed up world? Where is your joy in the midst of economic downturn, your steadfastness and global upheaval? Where is your life and light in a world of death and darkness? Jesus came to live a perfect life on our behalf, 
to die on the cross, not simply for us, but instead of us, to take our death and to die in our place, to be buried in a borrowed tomb and to rise again on the third day so we could have everlasting life. And that doesn't simply begin when we die. It begins the moment we trust in him. We can know him, love him, and pursue him anew have forgiveness of our sins, and a restored relationship with God. And if, and if you need that today, you can step into that. You can pray right where you are. You can come forward in a few moments and pray with me. But if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. The purpose with which you were created, and you can be restored to your Creator and find joy in Him that is unshakable in the midst of the world's up and downs. Others of us may need to simply respond by by being reminded of where our hope is, by going, God, I've been focused on the wrong thing. I thought that life was found in a 401k or in a new truck or in the world's applause, whatever it might be. And today, God stands ready to receive you, to forgive you, and to restore you. Whatever you need to do, there's time in these moments as we prepare to respond to do business with God. Others of us just need to raise our hands. You know that's okay to do here, right? You can raise your hands and worship the God of life in joy and for his glory. The invitation is what the old hymn writer says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And grace. Let us stand and let's pray together. Jesus, you are our hope and our life. We try to find it in all sorts of lesser joys that will never bring us the joy they promise. The world has all kinds of of false lies that they will try to tell us. Lord, help us to believe your word instead of them. Help us to, as a community of faith, hold one another up and point one another toward where life is found. You came and you lived among us as a real flesh and blood person, God in flesh. And you died on the cross a real death and you resurrected out of a real tomb so that we could have everlasting life and joy in you. Help us to... Put our faith in you. Give us the gift of faith if we don't have it. Give us faith through grace that we might trust in you. Lord, help our hearts and give us new affections and love for you that enables us to live for you in every area of our life. And Lord, today, if there's anyone struggling with their assurance that this is true, Lord, by the Spirit and through the evidences of your word, give them assurance now. It's unshakable that's unshakable in a world that's up and down and topsy-turvy. And thank you for your word. And in these next moments, help us to do business with you in a way that would honor and glorify you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavy hearted, come to Jesus and find your peace. If you're run down 
joy and everlasting satisfaction that transcends the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights of life. And we close this service with a benediction from God's Word, this from Psalm 19. Maybe. There we go. Psalm 19. Let me read this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.